Hello, friends. We are back with episode 66 of the Our Weekly Highlights podcast. My name is Eric. And guess what? As always, we are joined by Mike Thomas. How are you doing today, Mike? I'm doing really well. Glad to be back for another week. How are you, Eric? Yep, doing just fine. Starting to get a little more rest and tying up some stuff before the end of the year so I can actually enjoy my time off that's upcoming and do more fun uh, dev projects in the in the open, learning learning the hard way sometimes, but that's that's how I roll. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yep. So we're here to talk about another awesome issue of our weekly for 2021, week 46. And this week's issue is curated by Tony Elhabar, who you may know him from his awesome uh, competitions on Sliced recently, but he's been one of our curators for quite a while. So immense thanks to Tony. And of course, he has had great help from the rest of our R Weekly team members and contributors. So we're going to start with a story where the expression, take that of a grain of salt, is kind of apropos given our subject matter. But it actually has roots into a fairly big controversy that a certain uh, big company has undergone in the uh, in the housing sector. So, Mike, you want to give us a little background on what happened in the last couple of weeks there? Sure. So this was an interesting one to watch on both the news and social media. A lot of talk about Zillow shutting down its house flipping division, um, where I think they had some automated way where they would you could pay they would pay you cash for your home based upon, I believe it's it's Zestimate value. If you've ever been on Zillow before home shopping, you know they have some sort of model in the background that says, hey, here's the estimated sale price if you were to buy this house today, um, it's estimated worth. So they shut down their division that bought homes automatically and, and then had folks try to flip them. Um, so their CEO stated that they've determined that the unpredictability in forecasting home prices far exceeds what they originally anticipated. Oh my. Um, so that's a pretty strong statement. Um, and, you know, people found some old job postings from Zillow. This is how far it went. Um, job postings for working on this particular project. And they were looking for people f- familiar with the time series library profit. And so the social media warriors came out and then they started going after Sean Taylor, who's a great data scientist who developed profit yes. you know, saying that it's, it's somehow his fault that this algorithm was applied, um, you know, at Zillow in ways that they shouldn't have, have been applying it. And that's, you know, like saying that somebody used a decision tree on a model that, you know, to, to model something that wasn't a classification problem or something like that. Right. Um, you, you know, you can't, you can't control what people are going to use your algorithms for. So it got way out of hand. It was pretty ridiculous. Um, but for those, you know, like myself who are sort of from the school of Taleb, um, this doesn't come as a surprise to me at all, especially after seeing what has happened with the housing market in the last year and a half. There's been so much uncertainty um, and, and so much volatility. When I speak to executives, I use the example of image classification versus building some economic forecasting model. Because you know, while image forecasting or image classification, excuse me, sounds really exotic and difficult, there's actually a lot less uncertainty. Because an image can be boiled down to its you know, n by n pixels if it's a square image, which each of those n become the variables in our model and it's fixed. 
in an economic forecasting model, there's no limit to the number of variables that could be in that model impacting the outcome because we have no way of saying, you know, these are the only things that impact, uh, you know, or that affect housing prices or the only things that impact the economy. Today, it could be supply chain issues driving housing prices up. Tomorrow, it could be some new form of lodging that Elon Musk develops that completely tanks the housing market. So when your features aren't fixed, your model comes with a lot more uncertainty. And I think that this is something that Zillow unfortunately learned the hard way. And the big moral of the story is that if you are thinking about building a model, your first question should be not what kind of model should we build? It should be instead, should we even be building a model here at all? Um, and this does, I promise, bring us to Emily's blog post in a very roundabout way. So she put together an awesome investigation into some strange recommendations that her food tracking app was giving her. Yeah, absolutely. So um, like many of us, when the, when the pandemic hit, um, we were looking at ways of, you know, augmenting this new this new uh, world, so to speak, digitally um, to enhance our life. And she did pick up a couple of things along the way, such as this nutrition tracking app to kind of see what recommendations I might have based on her current diet, which is, you know, great. Use, use data for good, especially the data that you personally generate. And so she started using this and, you know, like anything manual, it can be a bit difficult to always adhere to like the perfect types of input, so to speak. So she knows that she was taking a couple shortcuts with entering certain food into this app that was kind of carried over from say days prior. Well, it's one thing to know you're doing that little bit of a shortcut, but then when she started seeing some odd messages that she might have to watch out for something, almost like a warning in the app, like a negative pattern being detected. Now she was entering basically vegetables most of the time. So when we were growing up, we were basically always told, and frankly, it's true, that vegetables are pretty darn good for you. You have lots of nutrients that are very hard to replicate with processed food. We don't have to get into all that. But it was kind of perplexing why this app would tell her you might want to minimize that a little bit. So in light of everything going on that we just heard with the Zillow saga, Emily was definitely thinking about just what on earth is going on with this algorithm that is telling me this. And so the remainder of Emily's blog post, and by the way, Emily Reeder is a senior analytics manager at Capital One, and she's honestly one of the most influential members of the community that I, every time she writes a post, I immediately save it to my pocket for offline reading because it's always fun to pull that up and see what adventures she's up to in the, in the data science world. Emily is awesome. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm I'm hoping I can get her on a podcast or some of her ventures sometime. She she and I always had great talks when we were at our studio conf for all those years. But um but yeah, the rest of her post takes down takes us down her analytical interrogation of what could possibly be driving these odd messages in this app. And through some pretty basic logic, she sh she deduced that association rules were likely at play, which in the short um, explanation means that the occurrence of a particular set of data, this model is saying might lead to another type of result occurring. And so from the R side of things, she used a package I was not familiar with called A rules to actually test this with sample data that mimicked her nutrition app entry. 
And while the makers of the app are, of course, not going to expose the inner workings of their machine learning modeling anytime soon for this, she was able to get pretty solid evidence that the type of food that she was entering likely was not being accounted for for as much as another underlying factor or two, or who knows how much else, combined with perhaps the application developers, perhaps even hard coding a rule of evaluation that was used to tell the user if they were going in extreme in a certain direction with their food intake. My takeaways from this, I would say very enlightening adventure in trying to get into the inside of algorithms like this is that like a typical data analysis, algorithms are definitely not a one size fits all, especially for real world inputs that can come from us humans who tend to like to do things differently depending on the person. And that we should pay very close attention to how we benchmark quality of the results with the various metrics that are coming out of these ML algorithms, such as RMSE or root mean square error, or other metrics that we often see in machine learning exercises. So it's kind of a wake up call that always have a little bit of additional perspective. Maybe don't always take something for face value that these apps are giving you, especially when it comes to your health. You know, you got to take ownership of that, so to speak, and definitely, you know, be a little more aware that the principle garbage in, garbage out can sometimes apply with these algorithms as well. If it's not the type of data that they are expecting. Uh, what were your kind of takeaways from this, Mike? I thought it was super, super interesting. I haven't seen a lot of people really kind of dive into a use case the way that Emily did in the way that an algorithm is affecting her in real life. Thought it was really, really cool to read this blog post. And, and again, you know, you said that she hypothesized that the app might be using some sort of association rules mining, which is like your, your most basic form of a recommendation engine. Uh, if you think about going to the grocery store, it's like if the person in front of you brought uh, bought bread, milk and butter and, and you go in and you buy bread and milk, the algorithm is going to think that your next most likely product that you're going to you're going to buy is butter. Kind of the same same concept here. So it's a great, actually, association rules are a great place to get started conceptually for anybody who's interested in learning about recommendation engines. And the A-Rules package is one that I've used in the past as well. It's a very good package for it. And like you said, she acknowledges that there's no way to know exactly what sort of model the app company used to provide these strange recommendations. I think one recommendation was like, you know, don't eat cauliflower because we see that on days you eat cauliflower, you tend to eat more calories. And so she, she concludes by saying, you know, that machine learning really shouldn't ever be giving automated health advice and that someone's health is, is not a space where you can afford to be uh, non-rigorous or unrigorous uh, in your modeling approach and, and might just be one of those cases, like I talked about before, where no model at all is the better alternative. Um, you know, but of course, I'm sure that the company put together you know, maybe some if-else statements uh, to create their <laughs> quote-unquote algorithm or rip some association rules Python script off a of Stack Overflow so that they can advertise their that their product uses AI and probably got their, you know, million-dollar seed round funding. I'm, I'm just kidding. Oh, that's a hot take. I love it. But, but, but not really. <laughs> she did, I don't think she named the app company, so <laughs> they'll, they'll remain anonymous. Emily's a diplomatic a blogger, I'll say that. Um, but but we, we know this happens in the industry, whether we like it or not, and, and with it being black box type of approaches. 
it is quite difficult to see just what is really happening. And, and certainly as me being an open source enthusiast, it would be great to actually see the underlying, you know, inputs or what kind of things are taken as inputs to these models. But, but in light of that, probably not happening. I think just having the right perspective is key here to, to where this stuff can go. Definitely. Definitely. Great first blog post of the week. Yeah. Yeah. I always enjoy reading Emily's stuff and we'll move right along to what can be another tricky situation in more of your typical data analysis where I can definitely tell you this from personal experience, but in my, you know, earlier data science and stat adventures, I might get this great data set that has been sent maybe by a colleague or from a service and I'm asked to quickly turn loose on getting some insights, maybe run some predictive models, build some visualizations, get a nice report out there. You know, maybe the importing process goes fairly smoothly and then you're ready to turn loose with some dplyr or tidyverse magic and doing some visualizations and then something happens. Maybe you made a mistake of trying to print the rows of the data set and it just totally hogs your R console to the point where you don't know which way is up or down anymore. Or you get even worse, the session just waiting, just that blank prompt, maybe a blinking cursor, and there's no way you know what the heck is happening. Well, when you're at this point, you may want to figure out you know, or do an assessment of what options are available for getting that, getting that performance back that you take for granted with typical data sets so that you can get on with your actual fun stuff of the data analysis. Well, it sounds like data scientist and data engineer Roel Hogerwurst, I believe he's based in Germany, has authored a very accessible blog post on his blog that gives a great overview of different approaches in the R world for dealing with what could be pretty large data sets. And his example starts with basically simulating um, a data set from another GitHub repo of a million rows, which I know from my earlier days of using R, that sounded like ginormous, absolutely huge. Of course, in 2021, that might actually be on the tiny side of a lot of web data that's generated. But Raul shows that with typical dplyr type syntax, you might run into some performance hits. So Raul starts off with showing what it will look like in a typical tidyverse dplyr pipeline, which could run into some performance issues with this kind of large data set. Even though dplyr itself is backed with C++ code, it can't account for a lot of huge dimension here. One of the first approaches Raul shows us is data.table, which gets a lot of praise in the R community for being extremely performant for both importing textual data files like huge CSVs, but also within the data.table kind of processing language in its data paradigm, you can get significant gains in summarizing operations, grouping, aggregating, and that can be a very solid approach if you're willing to invest the time a little bit in learning about the data.table language. But he also has an example of using the, the DT plier package to be able to leverage data.table as the backend for dplyr logic. That's another great approach as well. And then if you're on the Python side, he even talks about some newer developments that are on top of or in replacement of the Pandas library 
for actually getting better performance out of Python's importing of data sets. And then lastly comes the topic of databases. This can sound really scary, but we're in a great time where you have a lot of choices available for either specific file-based data databases like SQLite, or to leverage more managed solutions like say MariaDB, Postgres, or even some of the really fancy ones that are out there online. So you've got a lot of things at your disposal here. And this is a great way to kind of show the progression of starting from the real basics to what's available in R itself, all the way to tapping into some external resources to ease that pain of huge data set manipulations. So Mike, what were your takes on the approaches that Raul showed here? Yeah, you know, there is so much going on in the data storage space geared towards making our lives as data scientists and analysts easier and making our work more efficient. Um, you know, there, there's so much going on though that it can be hard to keep up. And I guess that's exactly why we do this podcast, right? So this article did a nice job of discussing you know, when and why you might consider moving your data to a database as opposed to flat file storage. It's a great introduction for folks who aren't super comfortable with databases, you know, or maybe just typically used to read, reading their data from flat files. You know, and it provides nice R and Python code, as you said, that demonstrates some basic data preparation tasks against both flat files and databases and should appease for the time being both the data.table and, and dplyr camps. Um, so the author, like you said, introduces SQLite and DuckDB as great database options that work both in memory or on disk, depending on your preference. And DuckDB, I've been seeing uh, get a lot of praise and attention these days. And best part is that it's open source with some major performance gains over SQLite, you know, when running large aggregation operations. So the other option that I will mention from more of a, a file storage perspective, as opposed to DuckDB on, on the database perspective, is Parquet files, which play nicely with the Arrow package that we discussed on the podcast last week in the Apache Arrow project. So if you're looking to avoid the database route, but typical delimited flat files like text and CSV files are, are just too slow, you can't fit your data um, in those formats, I would highly recommend looking towards storing your data in Parquet files instead. And there's ways to actually write SQL to query the data in a bunch of Parquet files. It's pretty incredible. And then of course, you know, there's, if you're looking for more, there's data lakes, data lake houses, and all sorts of other body of water related ways to store data these days, depending on whether you're looking to store flat files um, or, or your data in a database. And it's best, in my opinion, you know, we can't know everything and, and try to boil the ocean. So if you have the resources to work closely with your organization's database architect, you know, now we're working with so many different types and formats of data. It's great to have somebody focused primarily on, on that and what file storage should take place based upon, you know, each use case that you're, you're working on. Um, have them in your corner and have them helping you make those decisions on the best ways to store the data that your team is collecting or working with. Yeah, that's excellent advice, Mike. And I, I often hear data lake almost like a term that's thrown around as much as a cloud itself, but I do know that it is getting a lot of attention for the really large scale. Um, but I do, I do, I have been very interested in seeing where DuckDB goes 
And and you even mentioned it, like you said last week. I think the Arrow Project is a very intriguing alternative as well to explore. Um, I'm hoping that that plays nicely with some of the enterprise environments I have to deal with. But if it does, that might be a, a very, uh, you know, very accessible solution to some of my data woes I've been encountering lately, especially when I make my own volumeless data via simulations. I'm looking for all the shortcuts I can get to, to make that life better. Exactly, exactly. And things are moving so quickly. You know, I think it used to be pretty much normalized databases is where we would get our data from, right? Yep. A SQL Server database. And now, you know, we're finding so much power in unstructured data, which can't be stored in a normalized database. And we're having to maybe join some unstructured data with some structured data. And, um, it, you know, we're kind of expected to be pretty nimble. So I think staying on top of all the different tools that are being built now to help us do that um, is very important. Yep, that's what you can count on our weekly to do to give you access to all these different tools from the brilliant people that are exploring this so we can live vicariously through them in the beginning and then try it ourselves. <laughs> that's right. And there's no paywall for our weekly. You bet. You bet. <laughs> yep. And now speaking of uh, living vicariously through some really cool stuff, our last story is going to get real geeky with hardware here, but it's an area that has hit the mainstream for sure. If you've been aware of Apple's recent developments in the last year, you probably heard about the refreshed MacBook lineup, MacBook Pro lineup that has switched completely the inner workings of their architecture. In the past, they have used Intel-based processors, which of course is the same Intel that you hear about in other PCs that are sold in your brick and mortar stores, or you can build them your own. Um, the x86 architecture, technically speaking. Well, Apple shocked the world a little over a year ago when they revealed Apple Silicon that completely rips out any traces of the Intel x86 architecture in favor of the ARM processor, ARM64 to be exact. And if you do know your hardware, you would know that ARM is actually the same type of architecture that is in the very popular Raspberry Pis or other very small, almost embeddable technology. So what in the world is this? How did Apple pull this off where not only have they switched this architecture, but the performance gains, battery life, the processing, you know, heating uh, features of these new MacBooks and lineup of computers is astonishing when you look at the benchmarks and you look at the reviews online. So it's only natural that we're gonna see some in the data science community start to get their hands on some hardware like this and wanna use their favorite tool chains in this, like R and Python and anything else that can help with their analytical journeys, but may not always be smooth sailing. And that's where having a blog post like this from Patrick Schratz, who looks to be a lucky owner of some new Apple hardware, he has gone through probably an immense amount of pain <laughs> to get R installed on his new Apple Silicon-based MacBook. And in his blog post, he walks through the entire step where it's not just installing R itself. Well, I wish it was just that side of the story, but R has dependencies on various system libraries, even things like G Fortran, C compilers, probably others that we don't even know about in the, in the general community with the slight differences in how things like homebrew 
which if you're if you're on MacBook, you probably used Homebrew to get some development libraries installed in your system. Even that has some subtle changes into what it does for installation directories, binary paths, that if you don't know to look for those, you're probably going to get a lot of compile errors when you install packages from source, say via GitHub or other repositories like that. I can speak from experience, even with running a MacBook at work for the Intel architecture, that sometimes getting these development libraries is no easy task. So if you are one of these lucky owners of this brand new hardware, do yourself a favor and bookmark Patrick's post because it's probably going to save you a lot of hours of troubleshooting and definitely it'll be interesting to see what happens when more data scientists get their hands on the new Apple Silicon to see if these gains that we're hearing about in the general computing paradigm translate into actual R analyses, maybe machine learning algorithms, modeling in general. We'll maybe see in the future what gains we're seeing from that side of things. So yeah, quite a geeky post, Mike. What were your thoughts about this? My thought was that this one was going to be right up your your alley, Eric. I'm surprised we didn't lead off with it. (laughs) I think that blogs like this are incredibly important and incredibly underrated. You know, I I think one of the trickiest and, and least sexy parts about working with any programming language is just getting it and its dependencies installed correctly. And, uh, you know, I'm sorry that Patrick uh, probably had to go through a lot of trouble to make this phenomenal blog post, but I'm sure it would have been more trouble if he was trying to install Python. Just kidding. Um, (laughs) Too easy, too easy. (laughs) Too easy. Uh, (laughs) But getting things installed can be a huge deterrent for newcomers, you know, who are already, I think, back to myself, you know, migrating from Excel to R a decade ago, we're intimidated by the idea of writing code. Um, And I think that in most of the pedagogy I've seen, the best way to educate someone trying to learn a programming language is to demonstrate value really quickly. I think in Hadley's book, R for Data Science, I I think the book literally starts out with showing you how to make a ggplot right in chapter one. And they do this on purpose to get buy-in from the new learner that their time investment learning this new scary thing will pay off tangibly. Um, So I applaud anyone who takes the time to put together, like Patrick did, blog posts discussing what I call, you know, the non-sexy parts of data science, because I think this stuff is important and there's not enough people writing about it. And even for us experienced developers like you and I, Eric, we still run into installation and dependency issues. We could spend a full day or multiple days, exactly like you're saying, fighting with Homebrew on a Mac system or even Windows as well, it doesn't matter what system you're on, you know, certain packages are just going to clash or, or certain dependencies are going to take a little while to troubleshoot because there's some edge cases that you're going to run into because everybody's hardware setup is a little different. Um, I still fight with the RN package on occasion when some form of probably RCPP uh, decides it doesn't want to install or my system lacks some dependencies, you know, that Spark needs to get Spark up and running on my machine. So Great work from Patrick. I uh, you know, love seeing an article like this in the highlights and hope to see more like it. And yet another reminder to me that I need to give into the Mac operating system life one of these days. Well, to each your own, as I say. Um, I'm still a very uh, diehard Linux uh, enthusiast, so you have to pry that out of my cold hands, as I say. But even on that side of it, I do have my share of dependency nightmares I sometimes deal with. 
Um, I know one thing that's helped me recently is the concept of containerized development, where if I can just snap all that up in a Docker file or a set of Docker Compose things that are stitched together, then I can I can be guaranteed that that environment's going to work, you know, lickety split on my you know the very little time I get to do with my spare development stuff, or I don't want to be mired in dependency nightmares. I just want to get stuff done. Of course, sometimes even that has issues too. There's trade-offs to everything. But yeah, I, I love seeing posts like this. I will definitely have this in my bookmarks if I'm ever fortunate enough that my uh, company does a little refresh one day and maybe we'll get a refresh of these. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> well, I will look out for your blog post on getting Docker, uh, your Docker environment set up for containerized development work. Absolutely. Yeah, there's more to come in that space. It's been been exciting. Um yeah, so we have a jam-packed issue as always. Um, you'll see many, many additional resources on top of the highlights that Mike and I just walked through. Another one that caught my attention, especially I've been on this recent kick of trying to educate a bit more about some best practices and some of my dev, my dev learnings and creating new packages or new applications and the like. There's a great package that kind of lets you um, really optimize your education or your teaching of a specific code development pipeline. And that was from a guest blog post from Gina Reynolds on the RStudio blog with a package called Flipper. And if you remember those old maybe videos you've seen from the early days of black and white TV, you may seen those animations where it literally looked like somebody was flipping papers, you know, back and forth to show like Mickey Mouse animating in the, in the tugboat scene. Well, this is kind of like that with, say, a Sherrigan presentation where you could have snippets of code that just build step by step or plots that build step by step to show the impact of maybe this new line in a ggplot2 call or this new line in the dplyr pipeline. So you can quickly see not just the finished product of that particular analysis, but what were the iterations to get to that finished state? That is, to me is right up my alley where I'm trying to show more about the process of building things and not just, hey, here's this very polished looking app. Guess how I got there? Oh, read the GitHub to find out. You know, we just gotta, we wanna be a little more intentional about how we walk people through something new to them and being able to have a tool like Flip R to make that that teaching a little bit more accessible, I think is a big win for the community. So that was that was definitely highly recommended read there. Absolutely, I enjoyed seeing that one come across. And just as a little wrap up on that, it's actually called Flip Book R. There is a package oh called. There is a package called Flip R, but it's for flexible inference via permutations in R. So uh, <laughs> check out both of those packages, but especially uh, Flipbook R. <laughs> like uh, I said, we're not we're not behind a paywall, so so the, the audience gets what they get. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. Save that for your blooper reel for later. Yep. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I'll probably highlight too quickly one that i did not read but i really need to read um, is citations and, and citing r and citing r packages i think that's in very 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 important um, as you know we 
give back a little bit to the developers who, who made these incredible open source libraries that we use every day, potentially to create IP for the companies that we work for. Um, I, I think the least that you can do is cite the open source developers who, who built those things for you. Um, the second one that I really, really liked um, was a blog post by Andrew Heiss, and it was a walkthrough on beta regression, uh, particularly with a Bayesian spin on it. And this is fairly specific to me, but I see a ton of potential use cases for what he calls zero inflated beta regression. Um, and beta regression, if, if you haven't heard of it, it's a type of regression algorithm for modeling proportions. So values that lie between zero and one. Um, a lot of times in credit risk modeling, which is my background, we'll want to predict maybe the percentage of a loan that a customer borrowed that they won't pay back. Well, most of the time people pay back in full, so that number is zero, you know, but beta regression only models values greater than zero and less than one. So kind of the open interval zero to one instead of the closed interval. Um, but Andrew puts together a really nice blog post about how uh, this other form of beta regression called zero inflated beta regression can help us solve this problem. It's a lengthy read. It's, it, he says on his blog post, it's a 62-minute read. And personally, I read at uh, 1.5x. So it's a 93-minute read for me just because I'm slow. But it's so well-written that I couldn't put it down once I started reading it. Um, it's littered with great R code and visualizations that you can quickly get up and running in your own console. And I saw on Twitter that Andrew just had his sixth child over the weekend. So a big congrats to him. And it's mind-blowing to me that he was able to put together 62 minutes of content in this piece uh, just a couple days before his new child, Phoebe, arrived. So for anyone interested in modeling proportions as your response variable, your why, I would highly recommend uh, checking out this blog post. Great, great step-by-step walkthrough of what you don't even realize is a pretty tricky technical concept because of how well Andrew articulates it. Andrew's been on fire with some of his posts recently. I've always enjoyed his blog and I have a hard enough time doing this little shindig with two kids. I can only imagine how he balanced his life with six. My my goodness. Well, congratulations nonetheless. Uh, time management. Some are way better at it than others. <laughs> he must be doing something <laughs> right to knock that post out and all that, all that family uh, situation there. But yep. Excellent. Excellent summary, Mike. And yes, um, Eric is bad with package names. We'll, we'll let that live in infamy for a while. <laughs> Some free advertising to the flip bar package. Apparently so, yeah. I should have put that as a quiz answer to my shiny quiz thing I did a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> um, but in any event, it's, uh, it's another fantastic issue. If you don't know where to go, we're going to tell you where to go. It's at rweekly.org. You're going to find the latest issue right at the very top along with links to the rest of our curation team, if you want to get links to who we are, and also the GitHub repo itself, where you can contribute stories to the R Weekly project that you find online. It's a simple pull request away, or even better yet, use the website itself to submit the story if you like, or perhaps even a feed of a site that's continually updated with our content via its RSS feed or the like. So we're always happy to create Get uh, great new contributions there. And as always, this podcast is, yes, as Mike has said very clearly, completely free of charge. So you get what you get, but um, hopefully you enjoy it and definitely check out the back catalog. 
if you miss some weeks here and there, it's all right there for the taking, right at the top of ourweekly.org. There's a podcast link. You, you hard to miss, as I say. So, Mike, um, where can people get in hold of you if they want to follow your adventures? Sure. You can check me out on Twitter at Mike underscore Ketchbrook, K-E-T-C-H-B-R-O-O-K. And you can follow along with what we're doing at, at Catchbrook Analytics at catchbrookanalytics.com. Very nice. Definitely give give Mike a follow. He's always posting out great content on Twitter and LinkedIn. Yep, definitely check out that his uh, exploits there. And I am on Twitter as well at the Rcast. Um, my uh, live stream adventures still go. Uh, some people actually like watching it, so I'll keep going with it. Um, continuing some package development work this week, um, hopefully to make the process of learning and documenting the iterations of a shiny app easier. So having fun with that. And um, yeah, so I guess we'll wrap it up here and um, we'll be back obviously next week, hopefully when I can say the correct names of packages. But uh, until then, we hope you have a fantastic week and we'll be back with another edition of Ari Weekly Highlights next week.